All right, we are in the Gospel of Mark, and Miranda is going to come and read our scripture this morning. So Miranda and John have been with us for about two months, right? Two months? A month and a half. So, and uh, just a couple weeks ago, they went to the um, the newcomers luncheon. Had a great time with them, and so they're all plugged in, and we're excited that they're here. Look at my hand. And she spells it M A R Miranda. So it's phonetically correct there, right? Yes, my mom said she named me after a nun that was apparently named that. Okay, cool. And tell, remind me, how did you find Revolution Church here? Um, I recently moved to uh, Rain Tree Estates. Uh, I was living on the other side of Pearland, and we were driving by it every day. And I told them it came coming to me like, we need to come here. We need to come and visit. And we did, and we've been coming for the past month and a half. Yeah, we're, we're glad you're here. And, and we're not letting you leave, so don't even try. Okay, here we go. All right, so let's follow along as Miranda leaves from, uh, reads from Mark chapter 9. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, and for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And they sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put them in the midst of them. And taking him into his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks to be God. Amen. Thank you so much. All right. Let's, let's pray. Father, your word is amazing. And there's just, we could spend days just on this passage, but we don't have that much time. We just pray that you'd help us to see what you want us to see this morning. Open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts to be able to behold the, the love and the beauty and splendor of Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his name. And all God's people said, amen. Let me, let me start you off with a riddle this morning. What is one prayer request that you never thank God for answering? Anybody have a clue? God, give me humility. You can never get to the point where you say, God, thank you for making me so humble. You've just blown the prayer request right there. So we constantly need to be praying that God would make us humble, but we'll never be to the point that we say, God, okay, thanks for answering that prayer. I've got the humility thing down. I am the most humble man in my church. (laughs) That doesn't exactly work that way. But Jesus is teaching us this morning that humility is the most important characteristic a believer can have. And because you could say, well, Gary, isn't it love? But you cannot receive the love of God until you humble yourself. So humility is very is super important, as you'll see here. And we're going to see four things about humility this morning. Number one, humility gives us perspective on self. Humility gives you a perspective on yourself. Number two, humility serves the needs of others. Humility serves the need of others. Number three, humility receives children's for, children for Jesus. And number four, humility provides security, not competition. These are the four things Jesus teaches in this passage. And so let's start here in verse 33. This is when they came to Capernaum. Now, they've been going back and forth across the Sea of Galilee and around it and through it with water and all kinds of things. They've ventured out into Syria and all kinds of Gentile territory. But now they are in G- back in Jesus' hometown. And when it talks about the house, it's most likely Peter's house where Jesus spent a lot of time and stayed there. And, and once they got to hometown and, and, they're, and they're surrounded by people who know them very well, it says when he asked them in the house, probably Peter's house, what were you discussing on the way? 
So they're walking along the way, and you know, a group of so many people, 12 disciples, several ladies that are following, traveling with them, and other disciples maybe as well, and Jesus, you know, tend to be kind of strayed along the road and just kind of spread out. But evidently, this conversation was heated, <laughs> so Jesus could hear maybe 50 yards back, this discussion was like something to ask about. Because, you know, people are talking all the time, but this was something Jesus needed to ask them. What were you discussing on the way? And it was, Jesus calls it a discussion, and Jesus is being nice, because really the scripture tells us it was an argument, but they kept silent. You ever been that way? Your mom says, what are y'all doing? And you're like, just kind of kids hang their head and they don't want to admit what they're doing because they're embarrassed that they're acting so immature. And so they were silent because on the way or on the road, they argued with one another. And and what, what a thing to be arguing about. I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. Who are you? He's the one that said, upon this rock, I'll build my church. Oh, yeah, well, I'm his best friend. Oh, yeah, well, we were there on the Mount of Transfiguration. You guys weren't. You know, well, it's because we were down here working, you know, and just all the arguing going on. And I don't, I don't know if you follow the chosen at all, but it does a really good job of showing them arguing. It really does a good job. If you haven't been watching that, you ought to. It really develops the, the characters of the disciples and what these arguments might have been like. And and it says, and Jesus sat down. Now, Jesus is a rabbi. Uh, we Maybe we should do things different. I don't know. We when In America, we, the teacher stands up and the class sits down. Uh, in biblical days, the rabbi sat down. And everybody stood up out of respect for the scripture. And then they sat on the floor. So Jesus sits down, and then he calls them. Again, backwards. I would say, hey, everybody, come over here. And then when everybody got over here, I would sit down. But Jesus sits down, and then he calmly calls them. I think there's a lesson in there somewhere. And he says, he said to them, if anyone would be first, and I could even see him raising it saying, hey, how many of you want to be first? You said you want to be the greatest, you know? And they'd probably be too embarrassed to raise their hands. Well, if you really want to be first, let me, let me tell you how to get there. He said he must be last. And this is the perspective on self, that what we are taught from the time we are t- teeny tiny is you're the best, you're the greatest, self-esteem is everything. You to go out there and show the world, just do whatever you think you can do. And there's no limits, and they tell you that in the schools all the time. There's no limits to whatever you can do. And so you got a five-foot-two little kid going, I'm going to be the next J.J. Watt. Yeah, good luck with that. But I can do whatever I put my mind to. That's what my teacher told me. You're never going to be in the NFL. Why don't you just accept the reality? And you say, well, you shouldn't talk to kids that way. No, I think kids need a little dose of reality. They, they get trophies for doing nothing. You know, we had to earn them when we were young. And now they just like, hey, you're, don't, don't hurt their self-esteem. In fact, some teachers can't even correct papers with red pens anymore because the red is too loud and too scary. Like, you, you're putting, you shouldn't even put X's anymore on the problems that are wrong because it might destroy the kid's self-esteem. I can't make this stuff up. It's just crazy what we're doing to this generation. And when Jesus says, you know what? Forget about being first. Why don't you be last? Instead of being the first one to run to get in line when food is being served, why don't you say, hey, go ahead, go ahead. Why don't you go in front of me? And it's not just about food. It's about everything in general as far as life is concerned. He's saying you must be last. It's not even like it'd be okay if you were maybe in the middle or let a couple people go ahead of you. But really, we need to be focused not on ourselves but on others. In fact, you've seen this all over over and over again, if you come to church here at all, if you really want to experience true joy, who do you put first? Jesus. Who do you put second? And then who do you put last? Yourself. And, and that is so counterintuitive to what this flesh wants. This flesh is me, me, me. It's all about myself. I want to be first. And we see that in our kids. And let me tell you something, parents of young kids, if you don't discipline that out of them now, they're just going to be a big, selfish 24-year-old who's more sophisticated in how and get what they want, but they're still going to be all about themselves. You are robbing your kids of true joy if you don't teach them to put others first. And we need to do it, obviously, as adults as well. Totally counterintuitive, the self-esteem-obsessed culture we live in. We live in a country and in a world that's dominated by humanism. Humanism is man is the apex of, of civilization. It's not about God. It's about us, and we can do anything we put our minds to, and that's just not true. Yes, we can put a man on the moon, but we can't stop human trafficking. We can sit there and try cure all kinds of diseases, but new ones will come. 
We can sit there and cry, peace, 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 but wars are actually increasing, not decreasing. And it's, it, we're just getting in scarier, scarier times as man continues to worship himself, but he fails on his own altar. Philippians 2, 3 says this probably better than any other passage. Paul encourages us to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Wow, try to apply that this week. Try to apply that for the next hour. <laughs> Don't do anything for yourself. Don't do anything to build up your own ego. But in humility, everybody read the purple with me. Count others more significant than yourselves. Man, does that just explode self-esteem? Right there. It's everybody else is more important than me. In fact, the King James says, esteem others better than yourself. It totally takes self-esteem and flips it. Think of everybody else as their needs, their wants, their desires, their feelings, other people's goals as more important than yours. Because Jesus said in Luke 6.36, give and it shall be given to you. If I'm constantly on the lookout for others, others will be on the lookout for me. And that's where you get what you need for life. Because you don't, if you try to get it for yourself, you're like the monkey holding on to the ball in the bottle. Remember that one? So let me, ask, let me, let me go back here. Stay here. Um, so count others as more significant than yourself. So that goes right back to being last, like Jesus said, right? And he says, let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. Let me ask you what this looks like in everyday life. What does this look like on your social media? Is your social media all about others, or is it all about me? Here's me and my avocado toast. Here's me and my vanilla latte. You know, here's me, I got this award. Here's me. Really? They call them selfies for a reason. What does your social media look like? For real. Do you get discouraged if you don't get 47 likes? Oh, wow. Nobody liked my page. Nobody left a nice comment. Are you constantly just fluffing yourself up with those things? It, I really think we need to get that from a, a deeper well than those shallow waters. What, what is this? What is other people being more significant than you look like in your finances? You know, America spends $4.7 billion a year on our dogs. Our dogs. What do we give to the poor? What do we give to the needy? If we were to go, th if, you, if we were to open up your bank account on, a, on the screen on the website there and log in and so just see all your transactions. Yeah, there's the shirt I bought for myself and there's the vacation I bought for myself and there's the manicure and the pedicure I got for myself and there's the massage envy I got for myself and oh yeah, and here's 20 bucks to the church and oh, and here's something I gave to a neighbor. You know, it's just like, what would it, what would it look like in your finances if you were concerned about everybody else and your needs last? It's a hard word, isn't it? But Jesus doesn't, doesn't mess around, does he? he it, it should be reflected if we truly are God's children in our finances. Also, what does it look like in your, with your prayers? Man, I'm preaching to myself here. My prayer request is my finances, my aches and pains, my family, whatever um, bothering me, and I'm talking about, and it's like, oh, yeah, and Jesus is saying, amen, amen. And, and I seriously may go through a 10-minute prayer, and I haven't prayed for anybody outside my immediate circle. The list could go on for a long time, couldn't it? Of the number of people we could be praying for. You know, you wonder why our prayers don't last more than 8 to 10 minutes. You know who goes to your church. Start praying for them. And then it, be, it could end up, oh yeah, and by the way, Lord, you know, if you could help me with this test today, that'd be great. Praying for others first and ourselves last. It should revolutionize our prayer life. What does it look like most of all in your conversation? So Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. And have you ever run into somebody who everything they're speaking about is themselves? It, it really ought to change the way we talk. You know, Dr. James Dobson said years ago that a conversation is like playing tennis. I hit the ball to you. You hit it back. How are you? Great. I'm fine. How are you? Good. How's your job going? My job's going great. In fact, I 
um, praying about a promotion, things like that. How's your job going? You know, have you ever hit the ball to someone who catches it and holds on to all the balls and won't stop talking about themselves, never serves it back to you? Um, I think you'll find this funny, but I think you'll, what I'm about to show you, I think you'll find out it's extremely biblical. And just make sure the volume's up on this for me, guys. Thank you. Thank you. All right. I feel like the dancing dog's still behind me. No, it's very, very nice. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm getting to the age where my body's starting to fall apart. Now when things break on me, they just kind of stay that way. Oh, my hip hurts. I guess forever. Ah, bang my knee. Guess I'll get used to that pain. I don't know what happened. That's not the right one. Um, <laughs> can you, Brian Regan, Me Monster, if you could find that, there's a two-minute clip on that, okay? And we'll come back to that. Darn, it's so good, too. I, I know, I trust these guys. They'll find it, okay? Um, so what, what does it look like in your social media? to be unselfish and to be focused on others? What does it look like in your finances to be not focused on self but the needs of others? What does it look like in your prayer life to be not just praying about what affects you but what affects others? And what does it look like, most of all, in your conversation? Let me tell you one of the best things you can do in your conversation is ask questions. And that's not just some social, psychological thing. You see that all throughout the Bible. Look at how many times God asked questions. Remember last week we studied about the man whose son was demon-possessed, and Jesus asked him, how long has this been going on? And, and he just asked all kinds of questions. And even Adam and Eve were in the garden, and God doesn't come in, guns are blazing. He says, Adam, where are you? Adam Knew, God wasn't looking for information. He wanted Adam to see where he was. Are we good with that? Okay. Anyway, and then, then what does God ask next? Next, he says, what have you done? Who told you? And he just goes down. And when I was at Berean Baptist Church on the North Freeway for 10 years, there was a, a man there who was a, a fire, in the Houston Fire Department. His name was Fred Green, and everybody loved Fred Green. And and he was a very nice guy, but after years of this, I'm wondering, why does everybody love Fred Green so much? And I finally figured out his formula. It took me, I'm slow, it took me about four or five years. Fred would never talk about himself. He would always ask you questions. And if you tried to turn the conversation to him, he would just kind of just brush it off and just ask you more questions about yourself. And, and I'm embarrassed to say it took me many years to catch on because all I did was answer his questions about me. And finally, I would just say, no, Fred, enough about me. Let's talk about you. How's your kids doing? And things like that. And Fred was always that way where he looked out for other people. All right, so I keep going, or should we do that? All right, let's go. And... I'm actually kind of quiet off stage. A lot of people don't realize that. I was at a dinner party recently. Bunch of people that I don't know. One guy talking plenty for everybody. And then me, myself, right? And then I, and then myself, right? Me, me. I couldn't tell this one about I because I was talking about myself. And then me, 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 me. Beware the me monster. So I tried to jump in with a little story. I don't want to just sit there the whole night. Right when I'm done with my story, this guy goes, that ain't nothing. Oh, well, didn't mean to waste everybody's time. Telling my nothing story. Here, let Marco Polo speak. He's back with tales of adventure. My story ain't nothing. Maybe it wasn't, because I made the mistake of trying to tell a story about having only two wisdom teeth pulled, and I learned a lesson. Don't ever try to tell a two wisdom tooth story, because you ain't going nowhere. 
the four wisdom teeth people are going to parachute in and cut you off at the pass. Halt! Halt with your two wisdom tooth tail. You will never complete one, trust me. I'm trying to tell my story. You know, I had some wisdom teeth pulled. I had, um, I had two, I had four pulled. Oh, okay. No, five, no, nine. I had nine wisdom teeth pulled. All of mine were impacted. They were all coming upside down. The roots wrapped around my tongue, coming out my nose. They were tusks. I was a warthog. No anesthesia. They pulled him out with pliers. I was eating corn on the cob that afternoon. Pin the blue ribbon upon his chest. That knocks the socks off of my wisdom tooth tail. Why do people need to top other people? I've never understood it, and I see it all the time. Obviously, people get something out of it. At best, people wait for your lips to stop. Yeah, as soon as... Okay, yeah, you, me! You, me! You see the difference? You see, you see that? Now I do. What is it about the human condition people get something out of that? That's why I have a social fantasy. I wish I was one of the 12 astronauts who have been on our moon. They must love knowing they can be anybody's story whenever they want. They can sit back quietly at a dinner party while some other person, some me monster, is doing his thing and let him go. Let him run with the line while you be quiet. Let him have his moment. Yeah, I'm a big traveler. I have my business. All. I got my own global enterprise. I got to check on, you know, driving in the Autobahn because I keep a fleet of sports cars over in Zurich and I get this Swiss account that I want to check it. Mount Kilimanjaro expedition. Might have to cancel that. You know, runways on Aspen are a lot shorter the first time you go in there. And, you know, you know, that Pacific Rim company is going to try to take that over. And they're going to, not global enterprise. I walked on the moon. <laughs> well, you have the floor, moonwalker. <laughs> you know, you mentioned driving on the Autobahn. That reminded me. Once I was driving in the sea of tranquility. <laughs> in my lunar rover. And I, too, was worried about our speed till I remembered, wait, we're the only ones on the moon. Oh, my. What is it about the human condition that we feel like we have to top somebody? Someone tells a story about three foot of snow, we have to say, oh, yeah, well, I was in five feet of snow. What is it? It's selfishness. We do it all the time. We always have something called one-upmanship. And it's not just in our conversation. Conversation is just a barometer of what's really going on in the heart. And, and the problem is, we see other people committing a sin, and we are like, oh, that's horrible. How could they dare do that? And then we have our own sin over here, but it's not so bad. Why? Because we're committing this sin. If we were doing that one, we would justify that one and think this one was horrible. But then we, we just pick and choose because we're self-centered people. It, it's our nature, and you're going to deal with it for the rest of your life. What changes that? It's when you let the Holy Spirit of God come in and constantly convict you. It's not about you. It's not about you. Shh, shh, shut up. It's not about you. Be generous. Give. Be considerate. Be kind. Zip your lip. <laughs> Serve others. Yeah, it hurts. Keep serving. Just keep moving in the right direction. Read this quote with me, would you? Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but rather thinking of yourself less. It's not like, humility is not like, oh, I'm a horrible, stupid person. I'm no good. It's not even about that. In fact, people who talk that way are still self-centered. Because what are they still talking about? how dumb they are, how poor they are, how much their back hurts. It's all about them still. 
It's just an inverted way of, of, of talking about them about being self-centered. You should be so busy being concerned with everybody else and what the, who's, who's sitting by themselves and go and talk to them. Who, who needs the help over here? Who needs my encouragement? Who needs my prayers? That's like, oh, by the way, I, don't, I haven't even know if I've even had lunch. Because we're so focused on other people and we're thinking of ourselves less. Humility also serves the needs of others. Not only does it get the focus off ourselves, it serves the needs of others. Jesus says, you want to be first? You've got to be last, and you've got to be a servant. And the word here could be translated slave, or it was one of the lowest types of servant. We don't even tell our kids, hey, how many of you like to grow up and be a janitor? Yay, let's be a janitor. We, kinda, we don't say we do, but we look down on those positions, and there's nothing wrong with that. We have this mentality of, of oh, work your way up, be higher, whatever. And, and what about a job where you're serving others? What about the way you spend your time serving others, being a servant of all? Jesus set the example. Think about this. When did, when did Jesus wash the disciples' feet? When did he do that? Yeah, which was right before the cross. Think about that. If you were told you've got 36 hours to live, we would be saying, I don't have time to wash people's feet. I, I got a lot of pressure going on right now. I've got so much going on. I got, I got to take care of all my, get my things in order. And Jesus can slow down enough to wash people's feet, which was the lowest job of all. Oh, but Jesus, you, you, you should be doing that. You've got other things going. You should be totally stressed out. You're about to die. You're about to be brutally tortured for the next 36 hours. No, i got time to watch feet. This is what the servant did. But Jesus took the place. And, and, and it's not just serving. It's serving who? Everybody. You see, sometimes we'll serve, but we want to pick and choose who we'll serve. We want to pick and choose those we like and we'll serve them. Or I, I'm really good with kids, so I'll serve the kids, but I don't want to deal with old people. Or I, I, could deal with, I don't like to deal with kids or whatever. Or I don't like to deal with this color people. Or I don't want to deal with rich people. Jesus said to serve who? Serve all. Serve everybody. Whatever, wherever you find yourself in that situation, you need to be serving. We, we have a saying around here, Revolution Church. Maybe we need to say it more often. In Revolution Church, everybody serves. We don't have membership where you attend and you come in, you go out, and that was nice, and you get in your car and you just drive off. You know, maybe on Sunday you can do that, but we want everybody to be serving. You all have gifts and abilities, and they're not meant to be used on yourself. They're meant to be used for others. What talents, what skills, what knowledge do you have that could be helping other people, not only in the body of Christ, but in, in your community? Number three, humility receives children for Jesus. Humility serves, receives children for Jesus. This is kind of complicated, but this passage right here is interesting. So then Jesus took a child. I was going to see if I can get Theo, but I did that later. Anyway, went over and picked up this child, and it says, he, he, he hold him in his arms. Now, so we're talking probably not a baby because it says it's a child, okay? But it's a child small enough to pick up. So it wasn't an eight-year-old or nine-year-old, ten-year-old, although Jesus could pick him up at once, but most likely, you know, a two, three-year-old, and, and maybe four, and he took him in his arms. Beautiful picture, the arms of Jesus. What, is there a better place to be than that? And so, you, you know, he could again be like, well, I am the savior of the world. I don't have time for children, but he uses this as a beautiful, beautiful opportunity to teach. And it says, and he says, whoever receives one such child, picture this child, got his arms around Jesus, snuggling up to him, and he's caressing this child and loving on this kid, and says, if you receive kids just like this, in my name, you know, I'm not just talking about loving children for the sake of loving children, I'm talking about loving children who need a savior like me, and you, you do that, you receive kids, guess who you're receiving? Receiving me. Remember, remember Jesus was teaching one time, and he says, you know, I was, I was sick, and you didn't visit me. And, and I was in prison, and you didn't help me. And, and I was naked, you didn't clothe me. And I was hungry, you didn't feed me. And I was thirsty, you didn't even give me anything to drink. Like, when was that, Jesus? And he, this, is the, this is the judgment of the nations. 
And Jesus says, as much as you did not do it to them, you've not done it to me. And then he talks about those who did see him in prison, visit him while he was uh, in prison and sick and feed him. And he says, as much as you've done to the least of these, you've done unto me. And you know what? In our culture, the children are the least of these. Okay? We, we don't look as children as a priority as much as we should, unless they're just making us look good by winning the score, you know, scoring the winning goal, building our ego. ego. You see that, coach soccer. You see parents who live vicariously through their children, and when the game doesn't go the way, they're more furious than their kid. They're more upset that, that they lost the game than the kid is upset. And so it's, even what we appear to be doing for children really is to make us look good. But the way we, we, we abort children by the thousands, the way that children are abused, the way that all kinds of things, it shows that we are very incredibly selfish, and Christians should be doing the exactly opposite. We should be gathering as many children as we can for the cause of Christ and in the name of Jesus. One great test of a man's character is how he treats children. I, I have five daughters, and I, I've told them, you know, when, when they get to dating age, you're not there yet, won't be there for a, a long time. We'll have this discussion in about 15 years. All right. But the ones who are older and were dating, I'm like, you just watch how this guy treats kids. If he's like, I don't have time for kids, and he's like too mature for kids, watch the most mature guys. They've got, they'll get on their knees and play with the kids. And it's really a great test of a man's character, how he treats children. And if that's true, I believe a great test of a church's character is how they treat children. I remember one time I was in a church preaching as a guest preacher, probably maybe 30 years ago. And some kids were running through the hallway, and some of the older people got upset because the kids were just, you know, and it wasn't horrible, but they got upset. And I told my wife afterwards, I said, that's the handwriting on the wall for this church. They're about to die because they're so, it's all about their beautiful building and not being thankful they've got kids running through their building. I'm thankful we've got lots of kids running through this building. Isn't that awesome? Now, we're not trying to teach them to destroy things, but things are... The very first Sunday, the very first Sunday, November 14th, when we had our first joint service, one of the kids broke the door over there. <laughs> I'm like, yep, I hope they're okay with that, you know, because things are going to happen. And you know what? But who's more important, the door or the kids? You know, and we need to be all about children. And let me tell you why. And, and I shared this about a year ago, and I think it's worth repeating. Statistics have been done by George Barna about when people come to Christ and make a decision to become a born-again Christian. Only 1% of people get saved at age 4 or below. And, and even then, that could be questionable. Can a 4-year-old really understand? Some say they have. I won't question it. I mean, some kids are more advanced than others. But look at the number of kids, the number of people who say they got saved between ages 4 and 14. If, if that applies to you, raise your hand. I'm, I was 9. Raise your hand. See, see, the statistic is true. 85% of people who make a decision for Christ do so between 4 and 14. Where should, the Rev, where should Revolution Church put its emphasis? Man, I am so glad right now, I can guarantee, I would bet, if I was a gambling man, I would bet $5,000 that they are not in there just coloring a sheet and playing a game. I, I will bet $5,000. I know what happens on over there. They get the gospel just as clearly as you do in here on their level. And you parents have seen it. When they come home with a craft, it's about the lesson. It's about what they just learned about Jesus Christ. And so I, I praise God for the, the men and women who teach our children here and put that focus on there so they can get saved. That's why we go to camp, okay? That's why, Lord, you know, guess what we're going to do this summer for the first time in forever? Vacation Bible school. Amen, right? We haven't been able to do that because we haven't had our building. We've done other things, but we're going to do vacation Bible school. We're going to do all kinds of stuff to reach children because that yellow number right there is glaring on our face that this is what we have to do to reach people for Christ. And you see 15 to 30, 10%. And yet you see a lot of churches will put a ton of money into teen ministry and high school ministry, and then those kids go off to college and deny Christ. I think the priority needs to be on the younger and then let them grow into. And then what, you know what you do with your high schoolers? Have them serve the kids. You know, don't have, I mean, I'm not against youth ministry. I've been a youth pastor 
two different times, seven years the first time and seven years the second time. I believe in youth ministry, but I believe we, we were putting, we were doing an 80-20 error. We were putting 80% of the focus of ministry for kids on the teens when really, what did Paul tell Timothy? From a child you have known the Holy Scriptures which were able to make you wise unto salvation. It's very, it's very biblical. So what do we do with these numbers? What do we do with that as a church? Well, it's not just about the ministry and the programs. First and foremost, it's about equipping the parents of young children to live and teach their kids the gospel. If we can, in life groups and through preaching and through discipleship, we can train parents to be the first person to lead their kid to Christ. It's great, you know, when someone else in church leads your kids to Christ and, or kids go to camp or VBS and get saved. But if they get saved right there, kneeling next to their bed with mom, and accepting Christ, that's beautiful. And that, that's what we need to equip our parents to be able to do. Um, we also need to invest money and time in children's ministry, children's church, camp, VBS. I'm thankful that this, so, you know, Nathan has been our part-time worship leader, doing a great job. And this year we added Matt as our technology guy, part-time now with the church. And we've also added Tammy as our children's ministry director. She's been doing it for free for 17 years. She's, doing, she's now going to be paid. And so I got three people, part-time staff, which I'm excited about. And I expect that the Lord's going to bless that and we're going to move in the right direction. And we're going to do things. We're going to put our money where our mouth is on those things. Um, we also want to build a pipeline of young leaders that are involved in training and ministry. That our kids, this group of kids right here, and many more like them, that they grow up knowing how to serve. Not, yeah, they can have fun at church, they can have fun at camp, all that stuff, but they, they've grown up stacking chairs, haven't you guys? They knew what rolling out carpet was like. They know what it is to put the banners outside, just to be able to serve and get the focus off ourselves and that, doing that for our kids and training up young leaders. Wouldn't it be amazing to see, you know, Alex as a missionary to the Philippines? Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't it be to see the two Caitlins decide to serve the Lord in, in Ukraine after the war, you know, taking care of orphans who've lost their parents during the war? Wouldn't that be amazing to see those kind of things? And that, that's what I want our church to do, and have a, a pipeline of leaders constantly coming up that are willing to serve Jesus Christ. And then also what we can do in this community, Brookside Village and beyond, is reach young families, and especially the dads especially the dads. I'm not saying women don't count, but let, just follow what I'm saying here. We want to reach the dads in the community, and here's why. If a 3.5% of a family gets saved when a child gets saved first. So imagine a family of six, mom, dad, four kids, and the 8-year-old comes to VBS here and gets saved. The statistics say that only 3.5% of that family, which means one or none, of that family is going to get saved eventually because that child got saved first. But watch this. 17% of a family will get saved if mom got saved. But watch what happens if dad is the first one to get saved. 93% of the rest of the family will get saved if dad gets saved. He's the head of the family, and if he's going in the wrong direction, usually he takes the kids with him. If he's going in the right direction, he takes the wife and the kids with him. So where should our focus be in this community? We want to do things to reach men because women already have a spiritual heart tuned towards those things. Everywhere Jesus went, women were there. It was the men who were being the knuckleheads. You know? So if we can get the knucklehead, the rest of the family falls in place. So what do we do with that statistic right there? We need to build relationships with men. We, we need to, to do things for men, and you need to be reaching the men in your neighborhood and developing a relationship with them, not just invite them to church every now and then, but take them out to breakfast, you know, help them with their yard work. Do whatever you need to do to build a relationship with men that work around you. And even the men you work with Monday through Friday. And we need to make church more masculine and less feminine. You want to see a church is about to die? It starts looking like your grandma's living room. Just guaranteed. It's just the way it becomes. And yet, you know, there's church, like Clear Creek Community Church. They, they don't have carpet anywhere. All their floors are concrete, like stained concrete. And their philosophy is they want to create like a, a warehouse type of Home Depot environment so that men feel comfortable. Because a lot of men say that church is just for women and kids. And you know what? We make it look like that. And so we want, we want to be where church is, is a masculine place to be. And we want to have events that men are interested in and do things like that. We, 
We also want to continue to disciple young men. I spend time every week discipling young men in our church so they will grow up to be leaders and, and take over leadership positions. And we need to make that our emphasis. This is the way you receive children in Jesus' name. You get their dads, the dads get their kids, and, and we keep bringing up generations to serve Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, if you receive one such child in my name, you receive me. So when you love on the kids in this church, who are you loving on? You're loving on Jesus. And he says, whoever receives me, receives not me. And in, in, in Greek, this is kind of awkward because it sounds like you're not receiving Jesus at all. And in English, we would say, doesn't just receive me, but receives him who sent me. Who sent Jesus? Yeah, the God the Father sent the Son. And so Jesus says, you receive a kid, you receive me. And when you receive me, guess what? You're really receiving my Heavenly Father, which is my whole mission here on earth, is to get you back to your Heavenly Father. We've rejected Him. We've all been prodigal sons who've ran away. I'm trying to, to reunite you and my Heavenly Father. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous, Jesus Christ, for the unrighteous, you and me. And why did he do all that? That he may bring us to God. Jesus is the mediator. He's trying to take two people who are enemies, God the Father and humankind, and reunite us to bring us back to the Father. And then finally, humility not only gives perspective on ourselves, serves the needs of others, receives children for Jesus, but humility provides security not competition. When we're humble, we don't have to worry about the me monster. We're not trying to compete. I think this story, Mark, it's amazing how Mark doesn't tell everything chronologically. He puts stories together to teach lessons. So right on the heels of this, all is talking about children and being humble and being the servant of all. Here's what he says. John, Jesus' best bud, right? Teacher, we, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we try to stop him. John's expecting a kudos here. Oh, good job, John. We're glad you're stopping somebody from casting out a demon because we wouldn't want that to happen, would we? I mean, think about what he's doing. He's doing the right thing. And it says, and here's my reason why I tried to stop him, Jesus, is because he was not following us. When did it become us? Jesus said, yo, take up your cross and follow the disciples. Is that what he said? He said, take up your cross and follow me. But John's kind of getting up there with Jesus like, oh, it's an us thing now, you know. Y'all come follow us. And Jesus never said follow us. He said follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So Jesus said, don't stop him. He said, for no one who does a mighty work in my name, that's the key. This guy wasn't cast out demons for his own glory. We did see that in the book of Acts, where these guys said, hey, can we buy this? Can we buy the ability to cast out demons? You know, Because they wanted to increase their sorcery. Jesus said, no, if they do it in my name, for my glory, for my praise, how are they going to turn around and talk bad about me? If they're doing it for unselfish reasons, if they're doing it for the glory of God, it's not like they're going to turn around and say something bad about me. Don't stop him. He said, for the one who's not against us is for us. Notice with Jesus, there is no middle ground. You cannot, you cannot say, well, Jesus is a good teacher. I think he's pretty good. You know, I, I like to talk to the man upstairs, but, you know, I don't want to take all this too far. Jesus is like, no, no, you're either for me or you're against me. That's what he said in another passage. And he's just repeating it here in, in other words. And he says, for truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ. Now, anybody who's helping the kingdom of God here as we spread the gospel around the world, even if they just say, hey, here's a cup of cold water, will by no means lose his reward. Jesus says even in the little details, a cup of cold water, there's a reward for that. And so you're on one side of the fence or the other. How many of you have seen or heard about you know, the shopping cart test? It's kind of going viral on the internet. And basically what the shopping cart test basically says is, what would you do with the shopping cart when you're done? It's a test of your character. You know, you've put all your groceries in the back of the minivan, and now you have this cart. The, the, the cart stall is way over there, or you could just kind of put it between the cars and back out. And they say it's a test of your, of your character because there's no law that says you have to put the shopping cart back in there. 
You know, I mean, I would think that a good thing to do is when you get out of the car at the grocery store, you actually look for a cart that's not put where it belongs, get it, take it into the store, you know, and then put it back in the cart. So you've done something right on the way in and on the way out. At least, and that, they say that's what the test of your character is. But my question is, let's go a level deeper. What's your motivation for returning the cart? I mean, are you basically saying, look at me, I'm returning the cart. That loser over there, look at them parking it over there, just leaving it to where it's going to bank people's cars. I'm a good person. They're not. Is that what your motivation is? This is what your motivation should be. That this, what I do with this shopping cart is what Jesus, my Lord, would have me do to serve others. There's guys out here who are busting their backs all day, rounding up these carts and pushing those long lines of them. You know, I want, even though they may never see me put this cart back and nobody will ever see me, I know the Lord would have me to do this because I don't want to ding this person's car next to me with this cart. I'm going to do the right thing because this is my way of serving others. Not that I am better than everybody else and if everybody would just do what I would do, the world would be a better place. It kind of sounds like the me monster, doesn't it? That's what some people would say. I'm a good person. I'm like that loser who just left the card over there. You see, the problem is, and I think it was Martin Luther that said this first, we not only need to repent of our sins, we need to repent of our good deeds. So what? Yeah, because most of our good deeds are to try to curry favor with God. Look, God, I did this. Look, I prayed. Now, my day's going to go right, right, God? Because I did what you wanted, now you do what I need you to do. And it's like we're trading favors with God, not realizing we don't deserve anything, let alone the breath and the air we breathe. And, and what we do is we think, if I do this, this, and this, God has to do this, this, and this. And it's like some type of game that we play with God, and that we just, we, everything seems to be with the ulterior motives. We give in order to get, you know. We serve in order to be seen. We do all the right things, but for all the wrong reasons. And we need to repent of even the good things that we do. Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. How many? All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. None does good. Ultimately, So you say, wait, none does good? Yes, because if you're doing a good thing for the wrong reason, it's wrong. It, it's, it's sinful. But, but what about the righteous deeds that a non-Christian does? You tell me that's not really still a good thing? Listen to what Isaiah says about it. He said, we have all become, who, who, we, all be, we have all become who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are as a polluted garment. King James says, filthy rags. Don't want to be crude here, but it's talking about feminine products, okay? That's what it's talking about. God says when you do something good, but it's for the wrong reason, God says, don't get that near me. I don't want to touch that. I don't want to, that, that isn't what I'm about. He goes on to say, James 4, 6, is therefore God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Not only is humility the way a Christian should live, humility is what it takes to be saved. And most people don't want anything to do with Jesus Christ, don't want anything to do with church, because I've got this. I'm a good person. I don't need all that religious stuff. I'm, got, I'm fine. If I stand before God, God's going to say, yeah, you didn't kill anybody, and you, you didn't steal too much. You didn't take my name in vain too much. Yeah, come on in, because we're all about being good people. No, that, that, that's, that, that's the pride that will put every one of us in hell, including myself. Jesus through, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, Jesus through, though he was in the form of God, this is talking about pre-incarnate Christ, before Bethlehem, and he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. He's like, well, I need to try to be God. No, I am God. But look what he did even though he was God. He emptied himself. That's what we all need to do this week. It's not about us. No more me, monster. I'm not looking out for me. I'm emptying myself. And you take on the form of a what? A servant. 
And so therefore he was born in the likeness of men. Even though he was almighty God, he emptied himself of his own glory and became a servant and was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You talk about a humiliating way to die. Jesus chose this way of death. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. How did Jesus get to be the name exalted above every name? It's because he became the name that was below every name first. He was, he was a servant. He came to earth in the poorest of circumstances. Bethlehem, poor town, wrong side of the tracks. Joseph and Mary, poor people. Carpenter, poor career. He chose everything that was humble. And why did he do that? So the name of Jesus at every name should bow in, the name, in heaven and in, under earth. Let me ask you a question. Have you bowed your knee to Jesus Christ? If you're proud, you're like, well, I ain't bowing down to him. I'm not bowing down to anybody. I'm my own man. This is my life. I'm going to create my own destiny. I'm going to do what I want to do. We all need to bow our knee to Jesus Christ. And not just that. It says, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of Father. Have you confessed Jesus Christ as Lord? Have you accepted, as you bowed your knee to him and realized you are Lord of all, I'm a sinner, you're my Savior, I give everything to you because you gave everything to me. I would like for us to all bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment, if you wouldn't mind doing that for me, just to block out all distractions. And if you do not know Jesus Christ, if you've never bowed your knee to him and confessed him as your Lord of your life and the Savior of your soul, you can do that today. But will you be humble enough to do that? You say, I don't know. You could ask God for a humble heart. He could give you that gift, that gift of faith to be able to trust him. You just need to, if you're watching online or here in person, you, I'm not talking down to you because I know exactly where you're at. I'm a sinner. I deserve hell as much, if not, in fact, more than anybody in this room. But the good news is, Jesus Christ died for all the things you've done. All the things, the, the selfish, shameful things you've done that I've done. He paid the price, so you and I don't have to pay it. <clears throat> he went through hell on the cross, so that you don't have to go through hell for eternity. And all he asks that you do is to trust him. That when he paid that price on the cross, you say, it's not about me being a good person. It's not about my baptism. It's not about helping my neighbor. Those things are all great. But if they're not for the right reason, they don't count. It's what Jesus did on the cross. If you'll accept that as the substitute for your punishment, you can be saved today. You could pray a prayer something like this. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. <clears throat> thank you for taking all my sins and burying them in the grave and rising again. I believe that you rose again on the third day and you live for us. And because you live forever, we can live forever with you. So I, right now, I thank you for forgiving my sins. I make you the Lord, the boss of my life, and I give it all to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And if you made that decision today, I'd love to talk to you, whether you're watching online or in person. You can text me, you can call me, you can talk to me in person. And I'd love to talk to you about what it's like now to be a new child of God. Um, and uh, right now, we're going to actually do a question and answer session. Amanda, you're here, right? Wow. Come on up here if you don't mind, and you can help me with that. You got one fan out there, Amanda. Did you hear that? <laughs> All right. There. And you could text that question even now if you're watching online or in person. If you'd rather not text, you just raise your hand. You can do that as well. All right. Jesus would get away by himself sometimes to pray and commune with the Father. Does this support the idea of taking a break from serving when you need to refill spiritually and physically? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, um, there are times when I need to do that. You know, I need to take a break from preaching. Um, and whether I'm on vacation out of town and go to church somewhere else, it's nice for me just to be able to sit in the audience and watch someone else preach and be, the, be fed. And so that, does, that, does, that applies to everybody. So, I, yeah, that's, it's helped me, and Jesus, Jesus did himself. Now, Jesus was human, so we all need that reset to recharge our battery. And and that would bring up something else that um, the Sabbath is not a spiritual requirement. It's the only ten, one of the Ten Commandments that wasn't repeated in the New Testament. Jesus affirmed all of them. 
and that's the reason is because he now is our Sabbath. But as far as a lifestyle, you need a day off. You, you don't need to be working 16 days in a row and just killing yourself. You need a day off with your family just to chill, and that's good. And if you don't do that on a regular basis, you're going to need, you know, you may end up in the hospital and have a forced sabbatical for about five days. So, yes, it's a good idea to do that. And, again, it's just for a time. You don't want to be a permit. I wouldn't take years off of anything of serving the Lord, but you definitely could take a time off to do that. In the Catholic faith, it's strongly believed for babies to be baptized. Then they have to go to catechism. Based on the numbers that you showed, do you think that there? Do you think that is the reason why they believe in baptism in, in such an early age? Um, yes, part of it. And I kind of will give it a benefit of the doubt on that. So here's where infant baptism comes from. So when leaders of the Roman Empire decided, if you can't beat them, let's join them, and let's become Christian, you know, they knew that. Baptism equaled church membership, okay? Because it says we're baptized into one body. So when you're baptized, that means you're a church member. Baptism doesn't save you, amen? Okay, what saves you? Faith in Christ. Thief on the cross, wasn't baptized, okay? And, and so, but when you, when you um, get saved, you enter into the family of God. Then your first step as a new believer is to get baptized to publicly profess your salvation, so when someone's baptized in water, which is the only way in the Bible anybody's ever baptized, they are saying, Jesus died for me, he was buried, and he rose again. And they were baptized into one body. So now when someone does that, they become a member of, of that church, wherever they're baptized at. And so the Roman Empire said, wait a minute, we're, we're, we're not just, we're going to run all the churches. So you had, it was the birth of the Roman Catholic Church. We're, gonna run, we're, the, we're not only going to be the world empire, we're going to be the world religion. And so therefore, everybody has to be a member of our church. So if, if baptism equals membership, when, we want them to be members as soon as possible. So that's where you got infants started being baptized. And they totally skipped the theology that, wait a minute, you can't get baptized unless you get saved first. And nowhere in the Bible do you ever see an infant saved. In fact, you see the opposite. Like, no, 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 you can't get baptized until you trust Christ first. Okay, well, I do trust Christ. Okay, well, let's get baptized. And so... Um, so I think that maybe now that's their emphasis. And let me just say this. Uh, so it's not just a Catholic thing. It's Lutheran, Presbyterian, Anglican, Episcopal, and the list goes on, Methodist. Um, that all, and, and what they were is, so you have the Catholic, you've got true believers on this line. You've got the Catholic Church going this way. And then, you know, true believers don't think that Christianity got renewed at the Reformation. There's been Bible-believing Christians all the way back to Christ, okay? But what the Reformation was, uh, was Martin Luther and a lot of other believers, Zwingli and others, who realized, wait a minute, we've been being taught that we're saved by works. The Bible says no one's justified by works and that you're justified by faith, and so you saw the split in the Reformation, but they kept a lot of their Catholic ways, including baptizing babies. But for thousands of years, true believers have been not baptizing babies. So probably too long of an answer there, but anyway. How does one compete as a business professional in a competitive work environment while remaining humble? Wow, great question. I believe these principles apply to the workplace, okay? Um, let me recommend a book, uh, John Maxwell's Five Levels of Leadership, and anything by John Maxwell. John Maxwell gets paid by Fortune 500 companies to come in and teach business principles for executives, and all he does is teach them the Bible. He talks about, you know, how could a man born to a poor family with no internet, never published a book, never had an army, never did any of that stuff, and yet all of time and history is about him, and he turned the world upside down, never even traveled more than 150 miles away from his home. How did he do that? He did it by serving others. So if you want to be the greatest, if you want to be the CEO, you serve. And another book, really old school book, The One Minute Manager. Have you ever heard of The One Minute Manager? An awesome book. And it talks about this one manager. He walks into the room to his, you know, his other executive vice president and says, hey, what can I do for you? And he would actually would fly into one of his corporations and he'd walk into the guy who was in charge of that, corp uh, that, that location or that factory or whatever and say, hey, and he's, oh, great, well, you're here. You know, do we have a meeting I know about? No, I just came here to see how I could help you. And this is what the CEO is telling everybody under him. How can I help you? How can I help you? So it works in, biblical, in, in business principles because it works in the kingdom of God. So 
And the question was, how do you stay humble? That's okay. I think, and how do you stay humble is you realize every promotion, every raise, every plaque you get is because God gave you air to breathe, okay? And that God has put you in a fortune, a, a fortune situation. You could have been halfway through college and your dad pass away and your mom is elderly and sick and you have to quit college and go home and help her and then you never saw college again. And you may have been the next... CEO of a major, major corporation, but you chose to serve your mom instead. So before we get all proud, look at me. I've excelled over everybody else. You've had better circumstances than some people. Not saying that hard work doesn't pay, but even hard work is a gift of God. Some gurus say you need to boast. Some, some gurus? Gurus. Goo okay. Gurus. Okay. I thought you said guru, like from Despicable Me. Like guru that. says. I feel like that. Okay. Gugu. Hello, Gugu. Okay. Some gurus say you need to boast about your personal accomplishment in order to move forward in your career. How should we as Christians aim to be recognized and promoted in our careers? Um, Proverbs says, let another man's lips praise you and not your own. Don't tell people how great you are, how much you scored, what you did, whatever. Let somebody else talk about it. Because when I talk about how good I am, you're like, eh. But when someone else tells you how good someone else is, you're like, oh, really? You know, if a restaurant says, we have the best food in town, you're like, eh, I'll see. But when they get reviews saying, wow, I, this is my favorite restaurant, blah, 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 that's why we all check reviews, because we want to hear from somebody else's lips, okay? And the reason the gurus do it is because Eastern mysticism has crept into Christianity. There, there's the prosperity gospel that says, name it and claim it and speak things into existence. That's Hinduism. That's Hinduism. Hinduism teaches that faith is a force, and that words are the containers of the for force. And that when you speak the right words, you create your own reality. That's heresy. That's Eastern mysticism. And so that's why the gurus say you need to talk about your achievements because the more you talk about it, the more you create more positive energy in the universe. And then it, and it starts a domino effect of all kinds of good things. No, that's just not biblical at all. God creates reality. We don't create reality. In the Pentecostal religion, the babies are presented to God in a ceremony at church. Then as they are older, they are given the choice to get baptized in water. After being baptized in one church, is it wrong to change religion and start going to another church? Okay, so two things I'm hearing there. Yeah, Pentecostals do that. A lot of denominations do that. We do that. In fact, we have a child dedication coming up here next month. And we fully believe, just like Hannah dedicated her son, she said, Lord, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. And, and really, that's what we all should do. All, all, all churches should dedicate children. There's nothing against it in the Bible, okay? Just realize nothing, um, nothing magical is happening right there. Really, what's being dedicated is the parents. We dedicate ourselves to raise this child in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And child dedications are a good thing. We've done it in Baptist churches, Pentecostal churches. It's all good, okay? But the dedication doesn't guarantee the kid's salvation, like, it, like they just said, when they get saved, they get baptized later. Now, the second part of the question is, is it okay, to, is it good to change? Is um, after being baptized in one church, is it wrong to change religion and start going to another church? Okay. It's only wrong if you do it for the wrong reasons. Okay. So let's just say there's two reasons to leave a church. It's because they're not teaching the truth. And by truth, I mean the most important doctrines. Maybe you don't agree on everything, but if they start getting the gospel wrong, if it starts being a watered-down gospel, which is the most important thing, how to be saved, and they start mixing in works or whatever, or they start teaching something that's heresy about Jesus, like he wasn't the Messiah, but he became the Messiah at his baptism, that's heresy, okay? If they stop teaching the truth, you have to, you have to do what you can to try to fix it, and if you can't fix it, then you, you're obligated to leave, okay? But some people leave without trying to fix it. What does the Bible say in, in 2 Timothy 4? It says, if you see an elder teaching false doctrine, you need to talk to them, but you, need, you don't confront them on your own. You take someone with you, and you let it be done with witnesses. And then you say, hey, you said this in your sermon here, and this is actually not right at all. You know? And you do it with love and respect. And if it's a major doctrinal issue, we're not talking about minor things. Okay, We're talking about you know, who Christ is and how you get saved which is the two most important things. If you can't fix that, then yes, you have to go to another church. The second reason is, if number one, is they stop teaching the truth. Number two, they stop living the truth. 
Let's say it's sound doctrine, but the congregation is as cold as could be. Nobody's loving one another. Nobody's caring for one another. There's just, we're all just going through the motions and it's just religion. Then if you can't fix that, then you're obligated to leave because you need to love, teach the truth and live the truth. Those two together. That's why Jesus said, you know, they that worship me, worship me must worship in spirit and in truth. Okay. Um, so, and again, I think they're using the word religion as in type of denomination, but we know that we're, it's not a religion. It's about a relationship with Christ. Is that it? All right, cool. Um, let's see. Let's stand and um, we'll read this scripture together as a blessing and be dismissed. All right, Numbers 6, verse 24. Read with me, would you? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you.